Good evening, Foam Flingers. You tuned in for another exciting and semi-interesting episode of uh, watching me almost burn myself with hot coffee because I forgot my pot was on just as the episode was about to start. But more importantly, we have a guest today, and our guest is none other than the man, the myth, the legend himself, uh, Mr. Dorian. So I will go ahead and switch over now. It's good to be here. Yeah, there we go. All right, we're going to see how this holds up. I haven't uh, I haven't tried this new setup for streaming with uh, multi-streaming. So in case you guys don't know, if you're tuning in, we now stream live on Twitch as well as YouTube simultaneously. So you'll see two different chats. Feel free to interact however you want. Um, but uh, yeah, Dorian and of course my co-host, Blaster Arms. Hello, everybody. And uh, yeah, Dorian, you came highly recommended by a number of people in the community. They were like, you got to get Dorian on. And I was like, yeah, OK, I know Dorian. Why not? <laughs> well, the people demanded, so we obliged. Yeah. <laughs> but um, let's just go ahead and start. Samson, oh my god, six months, man. Has it been that long? Appreciate it, Samson. <laughs> six months of wow. All right. Um, so basically, who are you, Dorian? What makes you famous? Because uh, respectfully, you're not a content creator. And uh, people were kind of like, no, why, no. why are we getting him on the mics? And I'm like, you guys don't know who this man is? Anyways, go ahead. Well, I'm a modder, but mostly I'm a, a club organizer. I've been mm -hmm. running a club for a very long time now called Bucket, or Backwoods Uncapped Tagging. Gotta remember right. my own acronym. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a, a no-cap club, so there's a lot of, you know, 300, 400-plus FPS blasters. And we play wow. off-trail, so it's out in the, you know, the sticks, away from other people. And about how many people do you have in that oh, club, more or less? What was that? Uh, I just said about how many people do you have uh, in that club, more or less? Um, we have about a dozen people in total right now. Because we're only just getting started since uh, we got we had a long long break. We started again in late 2021. Mm. Last game we had uh, nine players show up, so it's a small club. It's definitely a small club, but it's growing. Cool. Yeah. Um. I guess to kind of comment on that, and you know, Blaster, if you want to rift into, I, I saw a lot of clubs in regards to. Uh, I don't even know if I could say the c word on uh, YouTube anymore, but because of the plague, I'll say the plague. I saw a lot of clubs kind of shut down and go on permanent hiatus, and uh, I'm glad yours didn't because you guys do things way differently out there. Yeah, no, we play no matter the conditions. Plague, snow, ice, you know. Snow, ice, awesome. Lots of yeah. snow and ice, lots of mud in the spring. It's, yeah, there was uh, it's snow in some of those pictures, yeah. Yeah, feel free to show those whenever. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring them up as we, we get closer to it. But um, cool. All right, uh, Blaster, do you have any like any questions? Anything you wanted to, to bring up? I don't want to monopolize Dorian's time. <laughs> um, well, uh, I did want to uh, because um, the the new uh, Nexus Pro and Aeon Pro. Uh, the internals and stuff i know you had posted something about it just yesterday or just the day before and uh i thought it was interesting that 
a few days before that you had posted um like a paint modified image of where a plunger tube would be over over the barrel on that was uh, i think the next that would be image she uh she was just trying to figure out why the bore axis was so low so she had a couple of like i guess you'd call them speculative Right. diagrams of places they could have put the plunger to and that's uh it's interesting i was thinking the same thing because when i first saw that and i was looking at that uh that bore site of being so far offset i was like why the heck did they do that that's so stupid and then <laughs> i saw well i saw how much space was above there it wasn't just um it was a lot of gap right and i was like well with a lot of gap and the size of the volume of the the shell around that area like if you look at the shell there's quite the bulge there and that's when it occurred to me that oh they're doing a really short breach probably some type of turn down or turnaround and um something akin to uh, as as if they had done a dictator. Uh, I don't know if you'd seen yeah. the dictator internals, but they did the same thing where the plunger tube pushes right up into the breach. There's no uh, there's no real well, pusher to say it's all of like a quarter of an inch long or something. That's actually not the setup. It's more like the pyroraptor where the pusher doesn't facilitate airflow. The pusher is just sort of a rod underneath the plunger tube. So the plunger tube is actually not in line with the barrel at all. Right. And so this one is similar to that as the dictator did, but uh, because the magazine would be in the way, it pushes up into what, what appears to some type of turn down uh, and pulls into a port that dumps into the, the breach, which is what I thought was uh, a terribly good idea. If they hadn't done that, you know and you hadn't posted the images that gave me a lot of peace of mind i was wondering what you thought about that as far as in terms of efficiency and how that's going to you know be a better option for a blaster yeah well one reason i can guess i can only guess why they would do this personally it's not how i would have designed the layout but i'm guessing they're <laughs> trying to reduce the amount of dead space so dead space is where air from the plunger tube gets forced into before it begins to push the dart. So normally if you have a breach, you know, the entire length of your pusher breach is dead space. All the air being pushed through there first isn't being used to force the dart down the barrel. So this new system has a, I guess you call it like a Z style airflow, which is much shorter than you'd get with a um, an inline pusher breach. Wouldn't that um, reduce or affect but, like fps or something i mean i, I don't know i'm not a i'm not an engineer <laughs> blasters <laughs> well you are redirecting the air mm -hmm. uh, in several directions because it comes out of the plunger tube one direction then it gets directed down then forward so you've got two redirects there it's a bit like a double turnaround which uh it's not it's not ideal it might still be better in this system because they don't have a lot of plunger displacement to work with so by minimizing dead space, it's essentially you have more usable plunger displacement. That makes right. sense. If, so, if they can make, it, depending on the size of the porting, 
that they put through there is also going to increase it as well. So even if it's got like those 90 degree turns, right? Cause it's got to make a 90 down and then a 90 back over. Um, the, uh, that first 90 actually creates a little bit of a pressure head in the uh, chamber. So that's going to increase the, the PSI uh, momentarily. And then, you know, push through that downturn, which will create theoretically a slightly higher initial PSI and really kick that dart out, which allows you also theoretically to have a slightly tighter initial breach because if your breach is a little bit tighter and you're going to get a little bit higher initial pressure head, then when that pressure head finally gets through that air chamber, the porting and hits the back of that dart, it's going to start spinning things up. Uh, yeah. right, I'll, I'll, I'm doing the math in my head. <laughs> we used to do that back in the day with brass tightening rings, where essentially mm. you'd use a brass cutter to slightly indent a couple of rings in the back end of the barrel to right. increase the friction so the dart would wait until the plunger airflow was powerful enough to overcome those rings right so you'd get a higher initial velocity and it would accelerate from that point and i that, don't think that's what dart zone's going to do i think dart zone's going to have a really loose breach and barrel unfortunately uh, because that's in all their previous plans and i think they do it for compatibility exactly that compatibility i think is the reason to do that so from a production perspective i absolutely think that that's uh, that's what i would do personally if production right it's one thing if i'm making a small batch and and labeling them as precision blasters it's another if these are going into walmarts and targets or whatever stores that they're releasing them to in europe you know they're talking 20 30 50 100,000 units however many and so yeah. You know, when you're looking at that kind of volume, that kind of scale, absolutely. The looser the tolerance, the more reliable it's going to be. And you're not going to have people complaining how, you know, they're mm -hmm. constantly getting dart jams or dart folds or whatever that other issues, right? Squibs are. <laughs> yeah, squibs. Yeah. Well, it's important, it's important to remember that we're not the primary demographic for darts, especially for the Adventure Force Pro line. Yeah. They're aiming at new nerfers or new people who are newer to high FPS nerd who don't necessarily have the understanding of, you know, dart to barrel fitment and not using worn out darts and things that would be common sense to a more experienced hobbyist. Yeah. They can't really, they can't really plan around that. Like hobby designers can. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I've, I've talked about that in the past among many places, but, um, about how, um, you know, companies like Dart Zone, we're not their main demographic. It's more towards, from my perspective, hooking these new people that want to do the cool thing in. <laughs> and that's kind of, I, I guess your, your statement kind of like mirrors that. For but, sure, for uh, sure. I think even though their target demographic might not be hobbyists, I think they do a lot of good for the hobby because a lot of the people who buy a Dart Zone or, you know, a Nexus Pro or something like that mm -hmm. end up then finding the hobby and they become hobbyists because of the Dart Zone products. Yeah, absolutely. I know Bucket started up again because I went to a Walmart and saw the Nexus Pro. I hadn't been in the hobby for a number of years before then. And I saw it and I was like, what is that? There's short darts on the shelves here at Walmart. And I went down a whole rabbit hole and to all the new hobby products and tech and everything in the last couple of years and we started the club back up 
Yeah, and two of the other original members started it up. I had a, a saying, uh, and I still do to this day, which is the because of Dark Zone and specifically the Nexus Pro and its availability, it really shifted the paradigm for the hobby because now. I mean, back in the old days, you know, because I'm an old school NIC guy myself, uh, before I made my channel, you know, you would be up all night making Stephens with the with the washer and the, uh, the shoot everything. Yeah. Awesome. You shoot like this. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. That's a history lesson there, guys. Let's yeah. hear it. Uh, explain, that to, explain that to us. Awesome. Oh, I wish I had some Stephens with me to shoot out of it. Unfortunately, mine are in uh, storage. But this yeah. is the assault. Sort of like the word assault, but spelled mm -hmm. with an E at the front. E-S-L-T. Yeah. Some people say it as a, they spell it out. But it's called the assault. This was made by Kane the Mediocre. Hey, Kane for, the Mediocre. Uh, mostly, mostly armless arms who have recently returned to the hobby as well. They have some new products on their Etsy. Yeah, we featured his, um, I'm sorry. So, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, we featured Kane's, um, I think he's called like the Frag Ball. Yeah. yeah. We featured that on the show. Before. Yeah. Nice. I haven't uh, seen one in person yet, though. The price was just uh, yeah. was a bit steep. Something I couldn't use at our club because that's more of a sort of super stock, you know, mm -hmm. kind of product. But this, this is definitely NIC. Yes. This was the very first, to my knowledge, the very first serial produced 3D printed product in the hobby or blaster. So this is where the whole printed blaster trend really kicked off in 2014. And you can see this is all, there's a lot of hand work in here, like this foam. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah. You know, these pipes, you can see those cuts. I and think then, he used um, maybe a mill um, or a lathe. I'm not quite sure how he got these really clean cuts, but usually these things would be done by hand. You know, you'd be that's crazy. drawing on this with Sharpie and using a handsaw or a, maybe a bandsaw to cut those sorts of things. And this was important. This was the first time there was a sear catch in a popular homemade. I don't know if this was the first wow. sear catch, but the first one that took off, which you know later got used in the caliber and a lot of hobby stuff. This was the first time I saw a speed seal. You can't actually see it, the plunger's back here. Okay. But um, one of the issues with breaches and homemades is since there's no pusher, you know, there's no moving breech part in here. Darts just sort of fall in line with the barrel. Is uh, vacuum loading. So in a traditional homemade, when you pull the, the prime back, you're, uh, the plunger is still sealed. So when it moves backwards, it's sucking the dart backwards. And so you get the dart sort of sealing in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And then it has to overcome that when it fires and it reduces your performance. So in this one, there's a speed seal that only works in one direction. So when the plunger's moving backwards, there's no seal. So there's nothing pulling the dart back. But as soon as it moves, the O-ring slides back like in a modern speed seal. And the plunger seals and forces air through the system. So it's a very, very important and often forgotten step. This is sort of like a weird middle ground blaster. Between yeah, stuff I was, like was going to say that. That's a very like later. transitional blaster. We can see the stages of transition from old, like old, old school NIC to... The more 3d printed stuff that, for sure that's for a sure. trip i was expecting like, to see something this this like nostalgic right i'm kind of a little awestruck i'm like damn i haven't seen one of those in years oh i absolutely love this blaster it's all original so all these prints even the duct tape it was a bit of a cane staple 
is all, uh, as far as I know, because I got this guy secondhand. But it looks to be all original. I shoot it all the time. I have his original um, silly tips, but they're not they're not hollow foam. They're like a Stefan body with a silicone tip. They're really unique. Yeah. Another sort of transitional ammo to soft tip unweighted darts, but they're still solid like a Stefan. They're not hollow foam. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I, I guess I've kind of finished my thought. Uh, that that was it was a big uh, transitionary period from my perspective because now you could walk into a store and buy Stefans and just go to a war. You didn't have to waste a night <laughs> making them yourself. And wow, I'd expect a like a a blast from the past right there. That was awesome. Yeah, no. Oh man, we never allowed Stefans in our games because we played what used to be called stock class. Mm -hmm. Essentially, there's no FPS cap or anything back in the day I'm talking about. This is 2012 to 2014 when we had our original games. You could build the blaster to hit as hard as you wanted, but you were constrained to using like stock full length darts. Oh, so there's yeah. a practical limit, you know, how fast you can fire a full length dart before you just lose all stability. You, know? yeah, you get all the fish sailing and. Yeah. Or the, the, the dart just destroys itself in flight. <laughs> That happened all the time. Yeah. All right. Especially when the elites, the elite foam is super soft, so you get a lot of blowouts in the back, and you know. We we have a How couple that, of. Uh, I did. I have a question though. How did that fare versus the streamlines? Because the streamlines had that longer stem in them. So oh, were they were they perform better or worse? So much worse because the center of gravity is like in the uh, middle CLG, of the dark. Yeah. So they're not right. They're not drag stabilized to the extent of even an elite, let alone something like a sticky. Yeah. Which is a sticky dart or a whistler. If people don't know, those are fat head darts. They couldn't fit inside of clips. You had to like manually load them into a cylinder or a barrel or something like that. But um, because they had that wide flat head, a lot of the times they had a lot of aerodynamic drag, which made them a lot more stable than, you know, elites and things like that. Because this was even before Kush or any aftermarket clip system darts. So like there was no, there were no decent darts that could feed in a magazine, basically. Yeah, that's true. All right, uh, we have a couple of questions from, from the, uh, I guess I'll say the audience, the, the, the chat. Oh yeah, read them for me. I can't uh, see the chat. I'm on Okay, mobile. no, no, you're perfectly fine, man. Uh, this is from Mook. He wants to know, what your favorite uh, mods are, like like in general, like you could choose, I guess, like a mod specific category. What's your favorite type of mods to perform on blasters? Ooh, that's tricky. A lot of the modding I do is old school modding, so cutting up brass and PVC and things like that. But my favorite is in the most enjoyable experience, and the mm -hmm. ones I cherish the most are actually not things that I make. They are kit mods. Mm, that's a Someone else designs a kit for someone else's product. This is a standalone blaster, but this has an Explorer expand, uh, expanded plunger tube long shot kit in it. So this was, uh, you know, designed to be dropped into an original long shot. And those are some of my favorites because you get to like see someone else's perspective. You can see what the designer was thinking when they were mm -hmm. making all those parts. And you can see what areas they tuned and optimized and what areas they didn't. There's lots of times with kit mods, there's a lot of room left over for you to, you know, slightly bore out your pusher and things like that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of performance left on the table with old school kit mods. All right. Um, 
We have another one here also for Moog. He kind of uh, spaced it out, I guess, an addendum. Uh, and also, what is your favorite? Would you prefer B cars or P cars? Or B scars? Cars, that... Oh, um... Like scars, B cars, or P cars. Like, whatever you prefer. That's a tricky one. I like string scars because they're very cheap. You know, a, a P car, if you have a 3D printer, is probably the cheapest. But with, a, with a, a string scar, you just need, you know, some fishing line and a little bit of some sort of tubing. I like how accessible they are, but I... The best results I get are with something like this. You know, a machine nice. bearing scar. That's what almost every blaster at Bucket runs, is some form of machine bearing scar. That's awesome. Because they're very consistent, they're very low drag, you don't lose a lot of FPS. So if you have the budget, a bearing scar is what I'd go with. But I don't think you need to have a bearing scar. I think if you... You know, if you have a budget constraint, your scar is not the most important part of your blaster. Right? There's lots of other areas you should first. Uh, Trip Miller from Radioactive Designs wants to know, what's your favorite high-performance build that you've done and your former high-performance build that somebody else has done? Uh, well, I'll answer the second part first. That's mm -hmm. really easy. It's Big Blue. That's... um one of Chris Cartea's long shots. That was what Chris Cartea was really my inspiration to get into high FPS modding. Right. Chris Cartea is a legend. Yeah. Absolutely. And one of the most, you know, knowledgeable and experienced modders probably in the history of the entire hobby. But he pushed a long shot all the way up to 400 FPS, which is that's better than I could do. It's really impressive. Big Blue. If you ever want to look it up, he has videos on his channel like detailing the internals and steps the build of everything. It's really interesting. My own personal build, don't have it handy, but I think it's my JMJ, or Jinming Jia, Warhammer. So this is a knockoff Caliburn. The Caliburn is not owned by anyone. It's public domain, so anyone can make their own version and profit off of the Caliburn, unlike most modern and even most more recent slug designs, which have some sort of license where someone owns the IP but allows people to do different things with it. The Caliburn, anyone can use. It's totally public domain. But um, I've got all the, you know, machined parts from a bunch of different makers and Roboman, and I've got X-Rings and everything in there. And I think it's my highest efficiency build because it's a, um, a very low compression 14 kg spring that gets about 315 FPS on average. And uh, it's such a light prime because of that low compression that you can just easily prime it with one pinky. We keep that as a loner here at Bucket as a um, sort of like a beginner blaster. You know, people who might not have the experience or the even just people who don't have the upper body strength for really high FPS. Great I know, way for them to shoot at three fifteen with you know I, I very know, minimal. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> we uh, I I run a club locally here in South Texas, and uh, when we were first getting the ball rolling. Uh, my, my my girlfriend, she wanted to be competitive, so she went and she bought herself a Nexus Pro because Drac told her it was good, which, you know, wh whatever. But she's a smaller person. She's like maybe like 5'1". She did not have the upper body strength to prime a Nexus Pro initially, and it's kind of like, wow, okay, I, I guess I severely misjudged. <laughs> yeah. Well, to put it into perspective, this is probably an easier prime than a stock Nexus Pro. Okay, cool, cool. 315 fps i think it's my favorite even though it's one of my weakest builds 
think I've only built long shots that shoot softer than that. But um, it's just such an efficient build. I spent a lot of time trying to get the prime as light as I possibly could while keeping it over 300 FPS. So I'm pretty happy with that one. Pretty proud of it. Awesome. All right, uh, Blast, do you have any questions you want to ask? Or if not, we'll move on to a, a topical question. Oh, I have I have more questions. Yeah, the, the, the guys uh, the guys been more more fanboying about this than I have. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Blaster. Knock yourself out. Uh, well, um, since a lot of things we talk about here uh, in this podcast are about games and community and stuff like that, and you have and Bucket is a pretty unique uh, club as far as how you run games and how you do objectives and such like that and I've, i found it very interesting uh, and i've wanted to talk to you at length about it uh but i thought that this would be a real prime opportunity to uh, ask you to explain it so that other people can uh see how see how that works yeah yeah for sure bucket is it's sort of a unique mishmash of old school and i see very much, you know, Pacific Northwest, that's the, the Pacific Northwestern corner of the U.S. if we have any international viewers, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, sort of outdoor culture. And to some extent, um, a, a more Eastern, like Singapore style nerf, where you people are, tend to spend a lot of money on their builds. They like to not just optimize things through tuning, but to, you know, buy expensive parts and you know, do nice paint jobs and things like that. Because um, most of our club members, we don't play, you know, airsoft or paintball or any of those sorts of hobbies. Nerf sort of fills that role for us. Well, let, let me let me interject there. Um, you know, I, I kind of ask this to everybody, but what was it about the foam flinging hobby space that attracted you to it over something like airsoft or paintball? Not that there's anything wrong with those hobbies, but why why the foam flinging aspect specifically? Just out of more of a curiosity. Well, when I was growing up, this is in the early 2000s, there was the, you know, the kiddie version of paintball and airsoft, mm -hmm. you know, splatter ball, those little tiny 50 caliber paintballs and things like that. And those terrible terrible springer airsoft guns you get at walmart and things like that we had those i've never played modern you know competitive high-end airsoft or you know high fps paintball or anything like that but um out of those three toys nerf was always fun speaking as a kid growing up in the end strike days because you could play with it anywhere mm -hmm. not only could you play with it indoors and outdoors it was just as fun and it was just as safe but there wasn't any public, you know, stigmatism. You could go anywhere with a Nerf blaster as a kid back then. It's not the same nowadays, I don't think. But yeah, it's I a... liked how acceptable it was. It was very easy when we started our club back in 2012 to get other kids to join. This was our freshman year of high school. So we just go around asking people, like, you want to go to a Nerf war? We, you know, for organizing a big 10, 12 person Nerf war. And uh, because it was such a because it was such a socially acceptable means of, you know, shooting your friends. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a word, yeah. People, you got lots of people interested. You know, I made some lifelong friends, I think, from that. But um, the aspect that really stuck with me once I started to get into Nerf is back then there was no rules, so to speak. You could build pretty much anything you wanted. You know, this was before 
FBS cabs, but also just before commercial products. There weren't really commercial products aimed at hobbyists, even small ones. There was a few things, like there was the early Orange Mod Works kits and Explorer and things like that. But you didn't see those all too often. It was yeah. so open-ended. As a high schooler who didn't have um, easy access to buying things online, when my parents would go to, you know, Home Depot, I'd just bring my allowance and, you know, pick up springs and, you know, ABC. I liked how open-ended it was, but I also liked the competitive aspect in modding back then. Because there were no rules or limitations, people were always trying to move the hobby forwards. So people were always trying to find new solutions. They were trying to get, you know, longer ranges, better stability, greater, you know, durability. All those things were like open-ended problems that everyone could try their own solutions to. You could learn from what other people before you tried, but nothing was like solved. No one know for knew for sure how to do something correctly. Yeah, essentially, like the, there was no horizon in sight. It was just, um, yeah, essentially endless just go endless possibilities. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this uh, from a completely subjective per perspective, because this is an, uh, I don't say an argument, but a conversation I had with somebody, which was. Um, we, we were talking about like 3D printing and like modding stuff and et cetera, and, and how he can, how this particular individual could get a blaster to clear like, I think like 475 almost, like teetering almost to 500 FPS um, easily. And I just asked a question, I wasn't trying to offend anybody, but I was just like, well, where are you going to use that? And he was like, well, nowhere, you know, and I'm like, well, then, then why do it? You know, and not that I'm trying to be rude to anybody, you know, by all means, I understand the creative mind. You, you want to see what the, what the limits are. But, you know, have you ever figuratively within yourself been like, well, okay, this is too much. Let me, let me dial this back a little bit type of thing. Or have you, has it always been just like, go? No, I don't, I don't think there are any, it's hard to go too far with Nerf. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, safety concerns. If you have something that's unsafe, that's too mm -hmm. far. But yeah. that's about, I think for us, for that's how it was back in the NIC days, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe a lot of the things people would try back then kind of did actually push those limits or go a bit beyond. Like we don't allow proof Stefans at Bucket. We don't allow metal weighted darts because they just were never that safe, right? They were the best options we had back then. But now unweighted darts are arguably better because they're more consistent. You can get them machine made and things like that. Yeah. Or even the ones you do yourself, there's still, you know, a body and a head that were made by a machine. They're just going to be more consistent. Even if you might not be able to get quite the same level of like kinetic energy or range as you could with like, you know, a ball bearing or a fishing weight, it's just not worth the additional danger. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's great that, that you put it that way. It's not worth the additional danger. Um, because, uh, well, like, like I said earlier, I run a club myself, and the main reason why we predominantly, at least for public play, not that we're stocked by any means, but why we point people to those directions where it's like, if you don't know what you're doing, I feel more comfortable as an event organizer telling you, go to a store, buy a Nexus Pro, start from there because you know what to look for, as opposed to if I tell you, go to Ace Hardware, go to Home Depot, you know, buy these parts and try to jury rig them together. <laughs> it's tricky for us. We run a lot of loaners because you can't just go out and buy a blaster that's, yeah, one, going to hit very hard, but two, just that's actually tuned, you know, so mm -hmm. it's going to perform consistent enough to be competitive at Bucket. 
So we have a huge loader stockpile. I'm always working on loaders. You know, after each game, I have to tune everything up again. But uh, usually people go to a few games before they buy their own blaster or build their own blaster for Bucket because it's, it's, it's a bit more of a commitment than your typical super stock club. So what type, what type of blasters do you have for loaners? I see that, you know, I was about to ask I know that. we had talked and you had a bunch of stuff on the, the on table. the table behind you. And uh, I'd like to see what, what type of stuff. things you do you have for loaners? Here's um, not the sort of blaster you'd run to a public at a public club, but this is an M20 by Sabre. This is actually a prototype from 2019. They called it the Founders Edition. The production ones never came in black. They came in bright colors, you know, green and red and blue and stuff. But this is uh, basically just raw Delrin. It's not super pretty in person, but it looks something like <laughs> it looks beautiful. Uh, very smooth, relatively light prime for about 270 FPS with this little short barrel and a 14 kilogram. This is a really popular loaner at Bucket because it's um, it's very short. People who like to be more mobile and who don't mm -hmm. want to deal with a very long barrel often run something like this. We also have more budget-friendly stuff. Like, this is the new Worker um, Seagull. I'm really loving this blaster. This just has a um, 1.6 by 300, so it's the heaviest Harrier spring in it. Mm -hmm. You can see it's a heavier prime. It's not super heavy, though, especially since it's so short. But um, this gets about 2... 55 to 60. That's a bit on the lower end. Nice. So the, let me ask you um, on, on the topic of FPS and loader blasters or etc. Do you really see a big difference in um, performance, but more specifically the fun of the player where somebody's running 200 versus 250? Like, like, do you really see or notice a difference or to somebody who I guess I'll say it doesn't know what to look for. Uh, does it affect their enjoyment uh, when they're out there at all since it's a loner? Um, I think people, I've never had someone, mm -hmm. I'm going to jinx myself here. I don't think I've mm -hmm. ever had someone have a bad time at their first game at Bucket. But there's certainly been a lot of people who brought their own blaster or who picked a loner that wasn't well suited to them or that wasn't tuned up to quite our level. And they ended up, you know, getting no tags, you know four or five hours of playing and they still had a good time but like buckets unique and that our blasters hit hard enough that blaster performance matters a lot more than it does at other clubs you know a lot of people say it's the player not the blaster once you get to a certain point it's both right yeah. the player and the blaster are both very important once you push them you know 350 400 fps you're not going to be able to do good with a stock nexus yeah no yeah I've, I've seen um <laughs> I've seen people put the most uh, jankiest springs in Nexus and where you hear the whole blaster basically want to crumple on itself like paper when they prime it. And yep. uh, somehow they still run it, but I'm like, dude, how many how many more primes do you have left in that thing before it just eats <laughs> itself? <laughs> yeah, I had the um, buffer tube blow out on my, my Nexus. I can't remember what was in it. It was some sort of... Maybe it was an upgrade Cedar spring or something like that. Oh, yeah. I have a funny story about that. It, it's um, one of one of my players had a, uh, a buffer tube uh, blowout, but his solution was I'm just going to run a uh, an airsoft uh, tube 
all the way against it, not extended, and just kind of. So every time he primed, the the tube was still trying to kick off, but he was just like shouldering it, like no. <laughs> the shoulder, yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, how was how was his arm by the end of the day? He only did one game, and he's like, "Okay, I, I gotta go because uh, I, I gotta go do." So I, I think he was in pain, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta go do something like uh, take a trip to the to the chiropractor or something. Or the very least, put some ice on it. Oh, All right, we yeah. have a lot of blaster death at Buck because it's very high spring loads generally. People are also just running the blasters very hard because the stakes mm -hmm. tend to be a bit higher. You know, you're already running up in the mountains off trail. So it's already, you've got that adrenaline going just from running around, you know, before people even start shooting. And so people sometimes use more force than they're intending to. And then there's the weather conditions. So you get lots of water in your blaster. I've had, someone's had their blaster once seize up because they got so much mud in the priming mech. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> like I said, prime it but it's um, it's very hard on blasters. Here I can show. I'm tuning this up for a club member. This is another blaster that someone at Bucket runs. I don't know why I brought all the low FPS stuff. This is a uh, 265 FPS, one finger prime uh, worker prophecy. Yeah, I was gonna say that looks like a prophecy. Yeah, it is. It's just a regular old prophecy. He has a um. 20 kilogram spring, a um, monkey mods long shot barrel cut down. I don't think you can get these anymore. This is a 15 degree Jing uh, flag and armor B car. I forget the, the Mandarin name. But uh, otherwise, it's just the regular worker machined internals. And I think he has custom O rings in here too. But um, that's crazy. Like, you don't need to spend a huge amount of money to come to Bucket. Like, this was probably, you know, a, $250 build, probably less. I would guess more like 200 bucks. But he didn't get this originally. He's actually the third owner. So he got it for 100 bucks and then just dropped in, you know, 50 bucks worth of parts. So this is effectively a $150 build. That's maybe what you'd spend on a decent, you know, 3D printed caliber or something like that from Out of Darts. It's not a huge barrier to entry, but it's certainly much higher than like, you know, grab a $50 Nexus Pro and just run it out of the box. Uh, okay, we got a couple more questions. Unless, last one, you want to go ahead and read them off in the chats? Are you, are you uh, yeah, so what are your thoughts on AEGs? I'm not a fan. I've only owned one, the Colonel Wasp 76. And uh, I broke it trying to put the buffer tube on. And I never actually got to actually test out the blaster. I was so annoyed with just the way it was constructed. I didn't even want to fix it. I just traded it for a Tomcat. Yeah. Yeah, you and I had discussed that actually. That we had discussed that very specific blaster and that very specific incidents a couple weeks back. Yeah. So I was wondering if that's what you were going to throw out there. <laughs> but uh, in general, I've seen AEBs from the beginning because I was always a big fan of Explorer. Mm -hmm. I only have a few of the actual products, but I've been following them all the way since 2012. And they actually had wars where most people were running AEBs in like 2014-ish, you know, 10 years ago now. People think of AEBs as a new thing because they had the the X-Burst. No, it was the X-Strike and the X-Blast where they're like in-house built AEBs, but they also used to sell, oh boy, XPs and XSMGs, which were like pre-built sealed breach stampedes. So like they'd buy a stampede new 
from like Toys R Us or whatever and throw in their machined internals and sell it as a pre-built blaster. And uh, those things were horribly unreliable. They were <laughs> terrible even back then. They're talking 10 years ago. You'd have gearbox failures and you know, yeah. electronic failures. They'd fry boards and things. They were running them on trust fires back then. So oh, you never even man. knew what they were running at. they just run a big like one of those uh, RC car like battery block type things. They just wire that in and just stuff in a bunch of double A sized uh, trust fires. But honestly, I don't think from what I can tell from talking to owners, because I'm not an AB owner myself, mm -hmm. I don't think AEs have really come that far. I don't think it's like Springers or Flywheelers where there's been a huge amount of advancement in the last decade or so. I think AEBs are still very primitive, you know, early stages of design. I, okay. And uh, I would never recommend one because okay. I don't think the versions you can buy right now are really worth your money. Because I don't think they're like finished. <laughs> that, that, that's fair. I'm going to kind of preference tangent slightly off this question. Um, I was talking to one of our members on the Discord, uh, Meet Discreet, and he was saying that, I, I believe it was Meet Discreet, so correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Uh, he was saying that his uh, his need, so to speak, for uh, Springer primaries is satiated. And that got me thinking, um, at the moment right now, that's essentially all we have. Either you have a flywheeler or you have a high-powered Springer. And, you know, what, is there anything else in the hobby that isn't there now that you would like to see maybe produced or designed or maybe a new concept or something? Uh, I'm, I'm just curious what, what you think about that. It's interesting. Yeah. When I joined the hobby, flywheelers hadn't taken off yet. We were, let's see, 2012. I think in 2012, like early 2012, the Raven came out and that was the first clip system flywheeler. And the mods people were doing were super basic back then. They'd wire in like nine volts. Oh my god! And they didn't even—they weren't even like e-tape <laughs> wrapping the uh, wheels yet because they didn't understand crush. Mm -hmm. So you'd have stock and strike crush. You know, not even a leap setup. Running off of like three nine volts, like all you know, daisy chained inside the stock. But um, you're just making me cringe. <laughs> you're just making me cringe. Yeah, for like and. Like half the hobby was LPA or low pressure air, which you don't really see anymore outside of maybe brain blasters. Mm -hmm. People put absolvers on stuff. Those have pretty much always been around. But back in the day, we had the 4B and, you know, the Panther. And oh man, there were so many the Extreme Blast Zuka and all these different platforms. You could just go to the store and buy, slap on, you know, 12 inches of brass and a simple breach or maybe even just a, um, a coupler, CPVC. And get you know 300 400 fps which for nic wars back then was allowed so lpa was huge there was also all the different you know air tech series before that and you go back to super max and laramie stuff in the 90s which were before my time of course but um lpa was a huge part of the hobby and it's strange to see it gone it's because but it's I, not gone i mean well it's, it's near yeah, it's near dead um uh, but i think that's because there's there's like you said you could go to the store and pick one up and you can't that's there's no availability and in yeah. fact i think today in the uh in the vintage nerf discord i made a comment about because we were discussing four b's i made a comment about you know it's it's uh it's kind of a tragedy that the only thing we have for lpa in this day and age is the uh the is it, it's Lennard still makes the big bullet, but good luck trying to find one. Yeah, I what? don't think there's 
anywhere in my state that actually has big bullet big bullets on shelves. I mean, they're unobtainium. Yeah, yeah uh, basically. <laughs> I, I found some on I found some on I think online a couple weeks back for I think twenty or thirty bucks or something like that. Um, but even then, you know. Yeah, I think the LPA thing is, you know, a lack of availability. I think that's why it would be dead in the hobby. But it, another thing to counter that though is what I'm seeing is people building uh LPA using um like tire inflators. Yeah. Uh that's kind of a thing I've seen. We actually had a uh one of the guys in our club uh, about a year and a half maybe 2 years ago put a tire inflator on a mag strike. That thing was awesome. Uh, that was a really popular mod back in the day. That's where else I was going with LPAs. We had the, um, oh boy, I'm really stretching my brain here. We had the Wildfire, <laughs> the Rapid Fire AS20, the Mag Strike. I know there were others, but those sort of full auto LPA power clip. Great. The, the power clip power was one. Clip. That was oh, yeah, the, the power clip. Yeah. That was a beast. I love those. From Was it AirGen or AirJet Power Plus? I can't remember. But yeah, yeah the it's power the, clip. It, yeah, it was the Airjet series from Nerf, yeah. Those oh. different propulsion systems are kind of redundant now because if you want full auto, you can just modify a flywheeler. You know, we understand oh. flywheeler tech now. It's very simple. If you want high FPS, you can have something like this, which is a uh, 430 FPS setup. It just takes two fingers, you know, in a split second between mm -hmm. shots. So there's not really much of a reason for high-powered LPA either. And we can build springers this one. Nice. All right, we, we got a couple more questions from the uh, the community, if you don't mind me uh, bringing them up. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm rambling. Okay. No, no, Feel you're, free to cut me off. you're, you're perfectly fine, man. But believe me, you're, you're like an encyclopedia of knowledge. I'm, if anything, I wish we had more time with you. <laughs> okay, uh, this is uh, also from Radioactive Designs, Mr. Trip Miller himself. Uh, what Nerf event... Uh, running or otherwise, would you love to attend? And I'll I'll add my own event to that. Just what major events, if any, have you gone to? Uh, I've note? never been to a major event. There have never been Whoa. any in my recent. There's nothing in the Pacific Northwest that's you know, uh, uh, what would be considered, I think, by most of the hobby, a large event. I think mm -hmm. this year I really want to go to Armageddon since Armageddon's starting up again. If you don't know, Armageddon started in 1999, I think. It's one of the, if not the oldest events still being run at the hobby. It's an NIC event. Yeah, we, we've but had, um, uh, what's his name? Oh, basic for, Nerf. No, no, but I'm basic trying to remember his, his real name. Uh, well, Basic Nerf, yeah, he, he was one of our first guests because right when we were getting our podcast going, he was like, hey, I'm going to do I'm gonna do this thing called Nerf Armageddon. I don't know if you've heard of it. I'm like, dude, of course I know Nerf Armageddon. we got to get you on the mics. <laughs> Oh, I did see that episode. I remember when it when it came out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, so yeah, you guys know all about Armageddon. Armageddon is an event I always wanted to go to, but I've just never had the time. This year, I'm definitely going to set aside you know a few days off of work and all that to head down there. For sure, get man. To meet. Uh, trying to think who all is going to be there. Chris Cartea, hopefully, will be there again. I've never met him in person. I've only talked to him online. Tinker Shot is another one. Spitfire Products. Who I've talked to a lot online, but I've never met in person. I think he'll be at Armageddon this year. It'll be really fun to meet people. I think yeah. the largest event I've ever been to was a bucket game, like you know, nine players. <laughs> wow. So in twelve years in the hobby, that's the largest game I've attended. 
And there's no shame in that, man. Um, there's no shame in that at all. I, I've been to, uh, I've been invited to like no local nerf wars where it's only like four or five players, and it's like, hey, if people are there and they're willing to fling foam, that's all that matters. Yeah, well, those could be some of the most fun games because those are, you know, the most dedicated players often. Mm -hmm. Once they show up, else does so. Okay. Uh, it's it's nice when you're in that position because you know the people that are there with you aren't pulling any punches with you, right? You gotcha. know, everybody out there is ringing it, and you're just going after each other. And that's exactly like you said, some of the best games um, because everybody's just in it. All right, that, let, let me try to get through a few more of these questions. Um, uh, I got one technical question. Um, go ahead. About the, with the BCAR degrees versus the FPS, uh, as Myrna says it, quandary. So um, like the know. higher the I, FPS, the more or less the degrees need to be. I don't really buy into that philosophy. I think bearing degree is less important than your rate of rotation. I think there's probably, this is my speculation here, just my guess basing on you know all the different anecdotal tests I've done with different designs. There's probably an optimal rate of rotation for the dart at a given FPS or a given dart that's gonna get you the best stability. I, so I, I don't I think there's any easy rule of thumb you're going to find. Because I've tested a lot of bearing scar designs and I, the degree I would, doesn't seem to have as much of an effect as like the crush and the spacing of the bearings and all these different little factors that affect the rate of rotation. Yeah, and I was also going to add in there and it would also depend on the type of dart you're firing as well because sure, sure. something like a dart zone product is nothing compared to like a worker. <laughs> workers uh product or dragging dart or whatever it is that you want to mess with uh yeah it, it's 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 like i've always told blasters too many variables to nail down everything like a science even though we like to try <laughs> all right i'm gonna just kind of shotgun through these a little bit uh backyard yeah backyard foam ask what's your thoughts on aeb we already answered that one um uh, what's your favorite type of ammo to run? So my, the ammo I'm running right now are green tip worker bamboos. I'm getting pretty good stability at range with those. Those are not my favorite, though. My favorite have always been PAC-Ds. PAC-Ds were the second commercially available short dart. Came out in 2012-ish, I want to say, after Explorer darts. And they're um, domes, so they're very aerodynamic. Like in our my testing with uh, Ultima here, mm -hmm. putting PAC-D heads on worker foam and shooting them at the exact same uh, place, shooting at the same angle and everything as worker dart, same foam, you get about an extra 50 feet of range. Wow. There's a considerable jump in range because of the more aerodynamic and the heavier heads. So PAC-D's best darts ever made, honestly. I wish someone would bring them back. Or like, you know, a knockoff. Okay, well, we have another one from Mr. Xbox himself, Xbox Games. This isn't necessarily a question, just more of a, a statement. He's like, hey, Dorian, I'll make it to one of your bucket games one of these days because you're right by my house. <laughs> well, we hope to see you here. Our next game is going to be late March. We don't have an exact date yet. We'll probably announce that later this month. I'm super stoked to get up there to a bucket game myself. I told you that you know last year when I when I joined on your Discord, I like to get out there. 
Um, I don't know when that availability is, but your games sound very interesting. Like how, how do you do the objectives when you, when you run your games? Well, buckets, I think different from a lot of clubs because a lot of clubs game organize game organizers almost have to put in more work than we do because they have to think about how people are going to complete the objectives and they want to regulate it. So that people naturally come to the same conclusion, right? They have a predetermined set of ideas of here's how they should be able to play and win, right? And they try and guide players without explicitly saying, you have to do this in order to win. Bucket's very different because it's completely open-ended because we don't play in a set field because we're in the middle of, you know, no thousands of acres. Yeah. There's no limitations to where you can go and what paths you can take. So we try and come up with objectives that are open-ended so people can come up with new strategies, right? They come up with new plays, new uh, new team composition. We usually sw switch up the teams each time. So everyone has different strengths and weaknesses. And the more you play with someone, the more you realize, you know, they're really good at this. So we should come up with a strategy that utilizes this and their skills, or maybe they're not particularly good at this. So we should come up with a team strategy that reduces or, you know, minimizes that, uh, that player's weakness and so it's generally speaking our games run for about 30 minutes to two or three hours per round and we don't play with any sort of respawns so if you get tagged once you're out for the entire round so there's a lot of weight behind pretty much every shot you take right and every time someone shoots at you there's a there's a serious chance that you might be out for you know 30 minutes maybe you might just be sitting around twiddling your thumb. So people play very hard and they play very smart because they, you know, they don't want to get tagged out. Well, what do you do for so, an objective though? Like when, we have, when you set up a mission or, or how, however you call it, like, what would you, um, just run us through a game, like a short. Okay. Well, our, our more, our most common and probably least objective based game mode we play is called uh, single life elimination. So we divide the players up into two different teams based on what we think is going to be, you know, balanced, right? We think, you know, you don't want too many players that are very long range or too many players that are very fast on one team. You want a good mix of player capabilities. And then we just hike off in the woods in, you know, opposite directions for however long. And then uh, once people decide where they want to start the game, we just start. You know, we have a signal of some sort. It depends on the game. And then you... Uh, the two teams basically formulate a strategy as they're playing. So they might see there's a ravine, you know, 300 feet to our right. What if we send the whole team, you know, climbing up the ravine? And so they have a high ground advantage. Anyone who tries to approach it from down below is not going to be able to. Or they might say, they're coming straight towards us. We should divide into two teams, right, and try and pincer them. So maybe one team will try and flank and come at them from behind, whereas one will stay there as like a you know, almost a beacon to lure them into the trap kind of thing like that. That's the least objective base and the easiest to organize game. Those we can just pretty much do anywhere. It's more about finding a good location. We scout, you know, weeks or months ahead. Weeks, uh, weeks or months before each game, we scout locations because we switch locations each game. So each game is in a different place. Uh, but uh, we're doing like King of the Hill. That's another popular game mode here which does have respawns, but that's a really tricky one because you have to find a large area that's vaguely symmetrical. 
right? You have to find somewhere where one side is going to have a really high, you know, high ground advantage or a brush coverage advantage. But essentially you just, it just takes a lot of time to find a location and people, once you've picked out a good location that's balanced, I think people just sort of figure out the objective on their own. There's still, you know, mm -hmm. many opportunities, many different ways you can attack an objective. Absolutely. Uh, Trip Miller from Radioactive Designs, once again, asking, since we're talking about wood play, he's like, playing in the woods, do you have any interesting stories about wildlife interactions? None in the middle of games. We've had a couple where um, where we play, there's a lot of elk. So sometimes when we're driving or hiking, we'll see a, you know, a herd of elk or something like that, which is always pretty neat on the way to the game. I don't think... Um, sometimes you find carcasses. That's always fun. <laughs> sometimes there's dead animals or scatter something gross that people step in. But um, That's always no, immersive. No, no, wild <laughs> no living ones. <laughs> That's crazy. All right. Oh, uh, well, actually... I changed my answer. It's um, mosquito season. Oh my god! Okay, yeah. You get swarmed with mosquitoes. We've had games. We had one game where I spent forty-five minutes lying down while the other team was searching for me because I was the last remaining player on my team, mm -hmm. and I had to sit there without moving because they were so close to me that uh, they could hear me. I was going to move, and I was just getting eaten alive by mosquitoes the entire time for like forty-five minutes. I could just feel them landing all over. Oh man, and those are Pacific Northwest mosquitoes. They're yeah. almost as bad as the Texas swamp mosquitoes. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm familiar with uh, that uh, that corner of the the woods up there, and yeah, they uh, they can get downright vicious. Yeah, sure. no, it's pretty bad. People get a lot of bug bites. Sometimes people get lots of uh, you know little cuts and things with thorns, like when there's you know blackberries and stuff like that, but. Well, that, that was actually going to be my, my next question, which is, um, I mean, hopefully you guys haven't had any, like, serious injuries or anything uh, in regards to, like, like your play style um, out there. It's all been, like, uh, I mean, I trust that you guys are experienced enough to know how to handle yourselves, but just for the sake of curiosity. Yeah, that's something we require of everyone who's coming out there, is they have to have some familiarity with moving around off-trail in the woods. Okay. You, don't have to be able to, you don't have to know how to play Nerf, but we can teach you that. You have to understand safety. I go over basic safety, especially based on location. Like if there's someone with a lot of like animal dens and things like that, we'll go over like look where you're walking. You know, make sure you look where every footstep's going to be and things like that. Or if there's going to be you know stinging nettles, we show people what stinging nettle is, right, so they they know how to identify it. But um, that's definitely that's always a risk, right? In every sport, there's some risk. And I think that's by far the biggest risk. So far, we've never had a serious injury, though. That's awesome to hear. That's awesome. Yeah, because yeah. everyone, I think, has the right expectations and understanding going in. So they play responsibly. Because you definitely could just run out in the woods and, you know, be an idiot and hurt yourself. It's not difficult to do. <laughs> oh, it's not difficult at all. <laughs> what are you talking about? Running around in the woods and acting like an idiot is my favorite hobby. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't be wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that sounded a lot more condescending then. <laughs> well, I, I've been to your play area. Ironically, okay, total transparency, guys. We're a little bit uh, breaking the fourth wall behind the camera. Um, I have been to where, where Blaster plays uh, his, his, his events. 
but I have never been to an event of his clubs because of just scheduling conflicts. Like the one time I stopped by, it was just happened to be in the area. So we just kind of like met up and hung out and flung foam, whatever. But uh, I was like, okay, now I know where you play. I understand your struggle. <laughs> That's good stuff though. Like, uh, yeah. uh, another question from, uh, the chat is, let me see. Uh, I lost my space. Who was it? Oh yeah. Radioactive designs. Uh, favorite moment you've had in a game. Oh, that's a good one. We had a, um, so there's, because we're an NIC club, there's very little that carries over from more milsim type clubs. Like we don't have classifications for blasters or rolls or things like that, but there is a pretty significant disparity in between what we call sort of CQB blasters. Mm -hmm and sniper blasters at our club. Sniper blasters are usually 375 to 450 FPS, whereas more CQB is more like 250 to 320-ish. And you generally, the advantage of a CQB blaster is if you can manage to close the distance, you're gonna have a higher rate of fire and you're gonna have better maneuverability just because your blaster is gonna be a lot shorter. And with a higher FPS blaster, you're less mobile you're less maneuverable, you have a much slower rate of fire, but you have a much longer range, typically speaking. So we had a, uh, this was just a six person game, but we had a uh, four versus two, two snipers on one team and four CQB players on the other. And this game, I think it was about two hours. I think it was about an hour and a half to two hours. It was a bit of a, it was quite a long round, single life elimination. And, um, i always remember this game because I found a ditch that someone had dug. This is out on, this is a public land, but it's log. So I'm guessing like a backhoe or something dug this ditch at some point and then planted trees. So this is older than the trees we're playing in. But um, I posted up there with my 415 FPS setup I was running, my M20X. And I pinned a player behind a tree for almost an hour who was 100 feet away from me. Wow. Because he got stuck in a tree in the middle of a clearing. And I was whiffing shots past him the entire time, so he couldn't make a run for it. Nice. And because I was 100 feet away, he couldn't tell. And I was in a ditch, completely concealed. He couldn't tell when I was reloading. Mm -hmm. And I managed to surrender him because he ran out of ammo trying to fight back. Nice. And maybe 10 minutes later, someone who snuck up and took out my teammate... This was her first time ever playing nerf. I had to shoot her 50 feet away with a 415 FPS shot, which Ooh. I felt really bad about. Wake but up and drink totally a cup cool. of coffee. Yeah, she was, um, she had a lot of fun. She wasn't, you know, she played, I think, paintball and things like that. So she had the right understanding. Of, you oh, know, okay. It's good to think oh, of it. Cool. You get shot 50 feet away with something that powerful. But I had that like momentary hesitation. Like, do I shoot? Right? Because I don't want to, you know, ruin someone's first experience like yes i want to win <laughs> <laughs> well it's, it's also I mean, a, a situation where if you be, if you're essentially like hey surrender or, or you know surrender or die type of thing then it's like you're gonna give away your position <laughs> you know yeah well we don't allow um bang bangs so if someone oh, okay. wants to surrender they have to just come out and say they want to surrender you can't try and like verbally coerce them into it like this player i was shooting at he surrendered because he was out of ammo like, he wasn't going to do anything. There's no way he could walk to pick up darts because I'd been, you know, mm -hmm. pinning him for an hour. But, like, you can't say, you know, surrender and point your blaster. So when we don't allow um, communication between the two teams is always 
complicated when you're organizing a game because when the stakes are so high and when people have their adrenaline flowing, you always want to prevent like any sense of real conflict. Yeah. Right? You want to yeah. keep it all in the game. You don't want to have any sort of, I don't want to say unfriendly, but stressful interactions. Like we don't allow call outs. You can't say I tagged you. If you shot someone, they didn't feel it. You didn't tag them, right? You have to call out your own tags at bucket just because in the past we've had incidents where people, you know, someone thought they tagged someone when the other person thought they weren't tagged, right? And if you don't have an established, a pre-established priority for who gets to decide who tagged who, then you're gonna, you know, you could get a big argument in the middle of your game, which is never fun. Oh yeah, like um, recently uh, we, we had that situation at my uh, local club where it's like so somebody somebody tagged somebody, they were like, no, you didn't. And, the game's still ongoing, so the person steps out from behind cover, and I'm like, "So you're not tagged?" And he's like, "No." So I just double tap him, and I'm like, "Well, now you're now you're out." <laughs> so, <laughs> because yeah. people well, we like have to. Luxury. We have the luxury. Getting tagged once isn't a big deal. You don't want to get tagged a bunch of times though, because these these do leap welts. These are mm -hmm. significantly more powerful than like you know a 150 cap club. You're maybe shooting one to one and a half jewels. We're shooting, you know, six to like nine joules, kinetic energy wise. So there's a significant difference in like what the experience of being tagged is. One, if you've been tagged, you probably know you've been tagged because there's been a loud like thwack, even if you didn't feel it, your gear or something. There's going to be a very loud sound. You're going to have a good understanding of when you've been tagged. And uh, you don't want them to tag you again. People call their hits very promptly, usually. <laughs> We got a couple more questions before we uh, head out of here, uh, Dorian. Of course, one is from me discreet. Uh, do you have a specific blaster line or brand that you wish would be resurrected? Uh, and it doesn't have to be like like a lightweight thing, but just out of the, I guess, nostalgia. Uh, what could I say, Explorer? Because they retired last year. I think that would be my favorite blaster line. Is the Explorer line, which was if people don't know, Explorer made the very first short dart blasters that were like manufactured not handmade pdc stuff they made the first short darts short dart mags and blasters you could get and they ran from 2011 to 2022 they produced them so all right our last question at least that i have seen is from mr surge himself better call surge and that's does bucket have an ammo cap like for example when you start your games is it like each team gets 200 rounds of ammo or no, no, no. It's um, generally people don't carry a lot of ammo because you don't tend to shoot a lot in bucket games. A lot of your time is spent maneuvering because you always want to have the advantage before you start shooting, positioning-wise or numbers-wise or whatever sort of advantage, range-wise. You always want to have some sort of advantage. You don't want to go into a fair fight, generally speaking, because then it's like a 50% chance you're going to get tagged out. Yeah. So people often, I run typically eight, 10 round mags so that's about 80 darts for maybe like a three hour game some people will run just like four 15 mags and only have like 60 darts on them for that amount of time and that's usually more than enough all right uh blaster anything else you want to try to squeeze in here for the last couple of minutes we, we, we got mr dorian on the horn um not man yeah, there, there, there's so much we could ask you, man, and, and you know we want to respect your time and thank you 
you know, for, you know, coming on the show. Um, uh, let's see here. When, uh, uh, when you, when you mod a blaster, what are you, what are you primarily shooting for? Um, at straight up FPS. I mean, where's your compromise between, uh, speed and accuracy? Generally speaking, I don't have an FPS in mind when I start building a blaster. It's more, I have a role I want it to fill, maybe an FPS range, but more like I want a short draw, right? So I can fire it quickly, or I want, you know, I want this blaster to be very durable so I can hand it to someone who doesn't know what they're doing. They're not going to break anything. You know, I think about in terms of loners, because most of the blasters I build are loners. I, um, I brought it up a few times, but this is my personal blaster. This is the only blaster I run at actual games. This was um, somewhere between an internal prototype and a custom commission I got um, early 2022. And so since then, this is the only thing I actually run in games. Just because uh, it's made to my exact spec. You know, it's the right size for me. It's the right spring load. It's the right priming configuration. And uh, I definitely can't build anything better than this on my own. <laughs> I'm very much a practical player. I'll run whatever the best thing I have is. That's fair. All right, then. Blast, um, you want to start rounding us out? I mean, I, I, I think we could talk to you all night, Dorian. Right. Uh, I definitely want to get you on for a future episode. Maybe maybe after you go to Armageddon, you can give us like, like an after-action report. <laughs> Especially since it'll be your first major event. Yeah, love to hear how a long-time uh, hobby player uh, enjoys their first time at a uh, at a large <laughs> congregational event. Um, see how out of place you do or don't feel. Uh, I think you would be surprised that uh, once people find out who you are, uh, how that's going to react for you. But uh, want a big thank you to Dorian for for joining us today. Uh, thanks to everybody who joined us in the chat, both uh, on YouTube and on Twitch. And uh, uh, thanks to my friend here, Bots, uh, for putting all this together. And I we'll hope you join us next week on the same dark time, same dark channel. Peace out. Peace out, guys.